On election day, 2008, I was arrested in my home in a cul-de-sac. I was a you know, suburban soccer mom struggling with opiate addiction and had completely imploded my life. And when I got out of jail, it was uh, a start over like I had never imagined starting over. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Hey, it's Lisa. This is our second episode in our series on starting over. And today, you're going to meet Laura Love Harden. Laura is a mom to four boys and two stepchildren, a literary agent, and a multiple New York Times bestselling author. Some recent highlights in her career include writing books with Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Anthony Ray Hinton, being featured in Oprah's Book Club, and even meeting the Dalai Lama. You just heard her describing the day she was arrested in her home in 2008, before being convicted of 32 felonies for drug use and identity theft. Needless to say, Laura's life looks profoundly different now than it did 15 years ago. But to understand Laura's story, which has several points of starting over, first, we have to talk about pretending. So for a moment, I want to ask you what comes to mind when you think of the quote-unquote perfect mother, the mythical creature that no one has seen, but somehow most of us seem to be able to describe. We talk about comparison a lot on this show. If you're a mom and you happen to be one of those people who doesn't care, doesn't compare ever, and would not be bothered if everyone knew your business, well, just, you know, please call me and tell me all your secrets because I am not that person. And most of us are not. It's just too easy to fall into the trap of believing that other people are doing it right while we're doing it wrong, that everyone else has it all together. I think most of us have something or maybe multiple somethings that make them wonder, would people still love me if they knew that? How would they react if they saw the worst parts of me? It's a scary thought. It's much safer, not to mention socially acceptable, to keep all of that under wraps and smile and say, I'm doing great. How are you? To some extent, we all pretend to be better, happier, more put together than we really are. It's the curse of the social media age, but it's not always a bad thing. I mean, sometimes when you bump into someone at Costco and they ask you, how are you? And you answer, how are any of us, really? I mean, does everything matter or nothing? I guess I'm contemplating my place in the universe. You know, you get the idea, that kind of answer. Well, it just isn't really very socially called for. So sometimes even... If all of that is true, the appropriate answer is fine. I'm fine, Gary. But on other occasions, pretending that everything's okay or fine, pretending we are or have what feels out of reach can go too far. So far that we start pretending to ourselves too. That kind of pretending we are not just fine, but something or someone completely different is what we're talking about today. Laura Love Harden began this kind of pretending at a young age for real reasons, to escape trauma and violence in her childhood. You know, I grew up in a family that had no language for emotions or feelings. It was very much pretending like everything was okay when it wasn't, and it was, it was chaotic and traumatic and a lot of addiction and violence. And I believed that everybody else had a normal life, 
right? I believed that everybody else had this perfect life, and I desperately wanted what I imagined everyone else had as a kid. Laura would spend time after school with other children's families and pretend to have, quote-unquote, perfect lives like they seemed to have. And she got good at it. She could pretend that the affection and approval she received from other kids' parents filled the void left by her parents. But at the age of 12, pretending began to require more, desperately wanting to be someone else, to have someone else's perfect life, drove Laura to steal for the first time. And she took her Aunt Jody's favorite jeans, wearing them every day after that. I asked her what that meant to her. You know, stealing my Aunt Jody's pants when I was like, you know, a 12-year-old girl and we were all about fashion and all of right? that. But it was really just, I was so uncomfortable with who I was and so lost and so feeling abandoned in a way in my life and separate from life. But it was really thinking I could change all these things on the outside and it would change how I felt on the inside and who I was and my role in the world. And I learned to be a chameleon like very early on. Wow. This newfound power of being a chameleon that could fit in the places where she wished she belonged offered Laura something craveable. If she played the part well enough, she could live the life she desperately wanted, the life it seemed like everyone else already had. It didn't matter what she really thought or how she really felt. If she could fit in, she could escape. So when Laura finally had the opportunity to leave home as the first person in her family to go to college, she was ready to start over completely. New interests, new personality, and new ways to escape. But pretending being a chameleon to have the perfect life, at least on the outside, came with increasingly dangerous side effects. Laura's first encounter with opiates was as a young mother of two, with a soon-to-be husband who was already cheating and surrounded by future in-laws who did not hide their mistrust and coldness towards her. Surrounded again with a void of love and approval, Laura accidentally discovered a new way to escape, which left her feeling like she belonged. Pills made her an even better chameleon, wiping away any anxiety or stage fright and allowing her to play the part perfectly, or that's how it felt, and how it continued to feel as Laura's life got more complicated. I really do believe that that's what led me to my addiction to opiates. It was really that pretending, like mm-hmm. pretending my, you know, as I was a young mom, I was married, I had three children under five and was not in a happy marriage. And I was like, hey, I just need to pretend everything's okay. And I was very much wanted the perfect family I didn't have growing up without doing the work to create that. And so that pretending and the toll that took and the never saying, what I actually thought about anything. Oh, wow. Is really what led me to my addiction, I believe. This point that Laura makes is something that's going to show up later. The point that pretending that she had the perfect marriage, the perfect family, the perfect life, that she was happy, made it impossible to address the truth that her marriage was failing and that the only thing that felt close to happiness was getting high. She had all these substitutes for what she wanted but couldn't have in real life. And pretending kept it that way. 
And pretending also felt like the only way to cope as Laura's addiction evolved from Vicodin to heroin and began to consume so many resources that it was a struggle to provide for her family's needs. With no money left and no support from her husband at the time, who was also addicted, Laura began stealing credit cards from acquaintances, from unattended purses, or from unlocked cars in the school parking lot, hoping or at least pretending that the only victims were credit card companies and convincing herself that in the perfect lives of the perfect people around her that she wished she could be, a missing $20 bill wouldn't matter or whatever she could find in her neighbor's mail. Laura's desperate attempts to keep up the facade spiraled out of control. She couldn't reconcile it with the person she wanted to be, stealing, drugs, any of it was unimaginable. That wasn't her. She wouldn't do that. But that's what she did. And when it caught up to her, Laura lost everything. Some of what happened next, you already know. Laura was arrested. She went to jail. She lost access to her children, including her three-year-old Caden. And with so many charges for the credit cards, the theft, and the drugs, Laura's case made big news. Her carefully crafted reputation as a well-educated, PTA-attending soccer mom and community member was replaced with a headline in the local paper. Now, with her identity in pieces, Laura faced a different kind of starting over than she had experienced in the past, as she was forced to confront profoundly painful aspects of herself with no way to escape. There was a moment in jail in the beginning of the first few nights when I really believed that I had just like completely failed at life and there was no do-over. There's no redemption arc. There was no second chance because I didn't deserve one. I thought that was for people who were good. And in that moment, I thought I was bad and I had a very dark night and I survived that dark night. And the start over began there where I was completely stripped of every piece of identity that made up who I was in jail. I didn't have a name anymore. I was a number. I wasn't a mom. I wasn't on the school board. I wasn't a wife. I wasn't a neighbor. I wasn't a community member. And I really had to start over both in terms of identity and then one surviving the year in front of me and then figuring out who I was going to be when I got out and started over again. In some ways, Laura was being forced to start over. Unlike other times in her life, when she was able to change her environment, escape, and start over by pretending to fit in, she no longer had the resources to control the way she was perceived. Her place in society, her career, her relationship to her children, she would have mountains to climb when she got out of jail to reclaim everything that was lost. But before she could do any of that, she would have to get clean. At a time when escaping from reality had never sounded so sweet, she would have to give up the only avenue of escape she had left. This wasn't the first time that Laura had gone into recovery for drug addiction, a process that was excruciatingly painful and full of opportunities to relapse. She had done it before, years earlier. In rehab, she met her second husband, and they pretended to ignore each other's relapses until they couldn't anymore, and he became her supplier. Starting over, even in good ways, had always been undermined by the pretending. Until this day, on March 8th, 2009, five months after her arrest, when Laura made a decision to start over differently than she had at any other point in her life. 
So on that particular day, I was midway through my year in custody and there are a lot of drugs in jail. People don't know there's far more drugs than I ever saw, far more drugs than I ever saw in the world. And I remember on that particular day, I was out of our G block, the unit, and I was in um, in jail. There's various volunteers that come in with the chaplain at the church. It was a you know very secular faith gathering. And I really prayed deeply for the compulsion to addiction to like go away or, you know, around that time. And I really made the decision in that moment too, that no matter what I knew to rebuild my life, to really start over, the foundation had to be that I was going to have to cope with everything without any chemical courage, you know, and I was someone who used to take a lot of opiate medication just to call PG&E, and I had a rough road to get through, and that's our utility bill in California, just so everyone knows. But it was really like the moment when I made that decision that no matter what was ahead of me, and I had no idea what was ahead of me, um, or how long I would be, you know, having to call on that strength. Um, That was, you know, my birthday, that because when you're struggling with substance use, addiction, disorder, whatever it is, there's no, that kind of has to be the foundation to make any changes, to really do a start over. So that was my day for that. What stands out to me about this moment for Laura is the commitment she made at the same time that she was giving up drugs. It's what Laura credits today with her ability to stay clean all these years later, what has made her recovery last. And that was her commitment to stop pretending, to face the truth instead of escaping, which was a coping mechanism that was older than and had fueled every other addiction after it. Laura's decision to confront the process of rebuilding her life head-on, no matter how uncomfortable, painful, and without any of her go-to substitutes for joy, was a choice to trade in the payoffs of being a chameleon for the chance at true happiness. With all of the humility and courage that has to go into that kind of life-changing decision, Laura started over again. It's interesting to me that when I first heard Laura's story, I assumed that her starting over story began when she was arrested and taken to jail. That kind of forced new start when everyone found out who she was and what she had really done. But as I spoke with her, I began to recognize that no one and no circumstance really forces you to begin again. It has to be a choice to start over. Laura could have kept pretending in jail. She also could have assumed a new identity or covered it up or stayed in denial. But Laura remembers the moment she decided that no matter what lies ahead, she would change starting then and there. And it informed the rest of her life. Even though she was still in jail, Laura began to experience some of the changes that resulted from this decision. Good behavior brought more privileges, and one Mother's Day, Laura's kids were able to visit her and spend the day. During that time, in spite of the circumstances, Laura noticed a change in her relationship with her kids, a change in her as a mother. No one dreams of spending Mother's Day in jail with their children visiting them. And I will tell you that 80% of women in jails are mothers. And Mother's Day is the saddest day in jail. It is the saddest day of all the sad days. You know, there's holiday. I did a whole year of holidays and birthdays. But going to jail, kind of being stripped of the pretending, it made me a better mother because I became a more real mother. There's nothing my boys haven't been able to talk to me about because of what I went through. 
and if they ever try not to talk to me about something, I, I have my tricks to make them talk. I have my ways. Yeah, they, you know, yeah. Um, as all mothers do. But I think it made me more real. It made me realize that what was important because I used to be like, oh, they all have to go to Stanford and they've all gone to college. They're all wonderful young men. Two are engaged right now. But what really mattered changed for me. That Mother's Day was a glimpse of the authentic happiness that Laura was investing in by being her authentic self and confronting her life head on. And it strikes me that Laura felt this shift so soon. Sometimes we think that feeling the benefits of starting over will take a long time because they're imagined results, not tangible. But for Laura, maybe because she was looking for them, she started to see them early on. She describes how what she went through reordered her priorities. And I can't help but notice that with the things that really mattered now at the top of her list, it was easier for her to be happy in the moment. Even though she had less than she had ever had before, she lost her home, her freedom, and her lifestyle, not pretending meant not focusing on ideals that could only leave her feeling miserable. And in the absence of worrying about prestigious milestones or the perfect life it seemed like other people had, Laura was able to enjoy real things that she did have in a new way. Even still, long before Laura would truly reap the benefits of this hard-won authenticity, there was a grueling uphill battle ahead. Laura had hurt people in her community and angered many more when her case drew national attention. Even as she worked to fulfill her sentence, making restitution and paying for her crimes in full, Laura learned that not everyone wanted her to start over. Um, you know, at the time when I was sentenced, there was, you know, an angry mob wanting me to go to prison for a long time. And I should clarify, like, nothing I did was violent. You know, like yeah. I threw a head of lettuce at someone. That's my only violent moment in my life. And I believe people should pay for their crimes, which I did, and pay back at money they owe, which I did. But the front page of the local paper when I was sentenced called me the neighbor from hell. And this was like mortifying, not only for me, but my children. You know, I had two boys in high school, one in junior high Aww. and, you know, and then a young one. And so, you know, parents are embarrassing enough in junior high without right. them being Just on the front existing. page of the paper. <laughs> but there's all these online comments from strangers that someone mailed to me in jail that I read that said, you know, I was a horrible person and I should be locked up forever, and there's a way to get her back in jail, you know? And so when I got out of jail, like, I had no idea. I was like, you know, like, I'm a rule follower, despite the felonies, but... Uh, right. but uh, I can identify. No. Yeah. <laughs> but but I was like, okay, I'm going to pay for my crimes, which I believe people should, and then I'm going to get out, and I'm going to do all the things and follow all the rules, and then I'll be free to start over. And I didn't realize, like, all the ways that people's both bias and judgment and all the ways the systems don't let you start over. Following Laura's release, she worked desperately to fill the requirements of probation, drug court, and family court, while finding work and trying to make a new home so she could regain custody of her son before it was too late. She wasn't allowed any contact with him in the meantime. If she didn't know yet just how vulnerable she was, other people did. The day I got out of jail, someone called probation and said I was driving by my my son's preschool. Well, one, I didn't have a car. Two, when I got out of jail, I was on work release, so I was at the jail. But it was just like a like anyone can do that, and then you oh. have to go back to jail. And so I didn't realize like how precarious life would feel on probation and reentry. I didn't realize that people. You know, long after I was working with amazing people in the world wouldn't want me living next door to them. 
you know, or like people's gossip and judgment. Um, and so what that did is I just, I isolated, you know, and it's really hard to make friends if you're not telling them your past, but you right. don't want to tell them, you know, like if you and I met at back to school night, you're like, oh, my son wants to have a play date with your son. I'd be like, great. And then I'd be like, oh, but you might not want them to if you knew about me, but I'm not going to tell you. And so it's just this isolating yeah. thing for a really long time. All it took was a simple Google search to put Laura's livelihood in jeopardy, or one person hearing gossip and rallying Laura's neighbors against her landlord because they didn't want her family in their neighborhood. Years after Laura had started over, some of the details of her past continued to haunt her in painful and anxiety-inducing ways, threatening the stability she had worked so hard to provide for her family. It strikes me how much your community can influence your ability to move forward and start over. But in the meantime, Laura was advancing in her career as a ghostwriter. She wrote two New York Times bestsellers. The chameleon superpowers that used to help her blend in and escape were now working for her, a sort of deep creative empathy that gave a voice to stories which needed telling. Instead of trying to fake experiences that belonged to other people, Laura was now finding the words for them, bringing them to life on others' behalf. Laura was a ghostwriter for Anthony Ray Hinton and got to have lunch with Oprah when their book was selected for her book club. Laura wrote for Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who brought her to meet and spend time with the Dalai Lama as they worked on another book. And as Laura navigated these wildly contrasting experiences, profound acceptance, love and acclaim, and deep insecurity, the pervasive anxiety of being found out for what she had done at an earlier time in her life, she realized that in a subtle way, pretending had quietly become one of her coping mechanisms again. She had been hiding who she was because the consequences had been so harsh for so long. And even though she had more on the line than ever, pretending was her canary in the coal mine and she couldn't ignore it. Laura began trying new things and finding new interests, expanding her circle of people who truly accepted her for who she was. Until, you know, I found, I found a community of people that sort of found out about my past and they're like, okay, big deal. You know, we all have our stuff. And so that really helped me not judge myself so hard and not be afraid to show up as me and to like, you know, it's about owning your story. Like, that's just a yeah. part of my story. And... It's a part of who I am. It's not everything, you know? And I tried to, for so long, to be so good adjacent to people that it would rub off on me until I realized I don't actually need to prove that I'm good, that I'm good. Yes, I've made mistakes, but I'm okay with how I am. It sounds so simple, but there's something profound in this knowledge that Laura found, that she was good. That was the truth. She didn't have to prove that she was good to be good. She had nothing to hide. Even if other people didn't think she was good, even if she didn't look good, even in the moments when her confidence flickered, she was still good. In a way, this was the opposite of the pretending that permeated so much of Laura's earlier life. Instead of pretending to be good because if other people believed it, she could ignore that deep, deep down she thought she was bad. And instead of having to prove she was good now that she had changed so much about her life, she knew for herself that she was good, as she was, including and not in spite of her past. To get to this point where that knowledge could sink in, Laura had to do some intense therapy and soul searching. She described how her relationship to trauma and healing has changed throughout that journey. 
I did a lot of work. I mean, it's interesting because I was surviving and not, you know, I used to think one, how do I heal from trauma I caused myself? Like I caused this trauma, so I don't deserve to heal from it. Like that's, you know, I had that belief for a while. Like it was hard for me to reconcile that like the nightmares I had every week of being separated from my children. You know, this is post-jail for 10 years. Oh, wow. Like, you know, those dreams that they're always transportation, like your kids are in a car rolling away or a dock or a train. You know, I had those over and over and it was always like, you know, Caden's hand coming, you know, like... And I had those and I didn't realize it was PTSD from that moment of my arrest. You know, I didn't realize. And for a long time, even realizing that, I was like, well, I did that. So I don't like, I don't get to heal from that. So I started working with these amazing authors, you know, in my literary agency, you know, I with Archbishop Desmond Tutu and neuroscientists who deal with trauma and adverse childhood experiences. And I got this exposure to all these books and these people and I absorbed it over time, right? Like it had just absorbed until I, I that. <laughs> you know, it, and in and I was absorbing it as I was surviving and achieving and trying to like, you know, rebuild a life. And then there was a point where I actively like said, okay, I'm going to actually do the work consciously, mm-hmm. right? And some of that was when I gave a TED Talk and I stopped keeping the secret because I was so afraid people were going to know about my past. I was working with all these amazing people who are not judgy people, mm-hmm. you know, but so afraid people would find out, you know. I was with the Dalai Lama and, you know, thinking he was going to judge me. Like, he's the least judgy person in the <laughs> right. world, right? Like, But it was this sort of um, obsession with my own Badness, you know, which is a weird, it's just a, a weird thing to do. But, um, you know, no one was more unforgiving of me than me or more judgmental or as hard on me as I was of me. So as soon as I realized that, um, you know, I did work with therapists. I did some, uh, I did lots of things yeah. to help heal. And mostly I got honest and I told my story and I stopped caring as much what people think about me. This change that Laura is describing, disconnecting yourself from what other people think and being honest, is easier said than done. I find myself saying this as well, something like, I'm an open book, ask me anything, I don't care what people think. And then, on further reflection, there are some moments, some memories that I know I've never told anyone, or things that are hard or difficult to tell my kids. I think that's a pretty universal feeling. But in the moment, it feels so personal. And Laura, after all her soul searching and therapy and speaking with the Dalai Lama, didn't escape that tension either. For her, part of that exercise, telling her story honestly, openly, was writing her book about her own life, a book she would intentionally have her kids read, her now teenage and adult sons, some of whom were young enough to not remember clearly what was going on at that time in their lives. All the details that had ever kept Laura captive in fear because of the consequences if people found out, she released in maybe one of the most public ways you can. And it was still hard to do. So there's things in my final book that were not in my book proposal because I wasn't actually willing to go there. Yeah. You know, the, the chapter where I'm committing my crimes, my editor asked me like three days before it was going to print. He was like, we need a chapter of you committing your crimes. And I had to really oh. look at why I had avoided that, Yeah. right? Because it was me hustling vulnerability. Here's my vulnerable, honest book, <laughs> but I don't want you to see me at my worst, yeah. right? And so those two things were really, you know, even that time out on bail that's in, in the middle of the book, I didn't, um, I hadn't told no one about that, not my family, 
not anybody, not my editor, not my agent, not my coworkers. And yeah. luckily I had, you know, a great editor at Simon Schuster who pushed me to really um, be really honest. But that was hard, you know. Oh, yeah. And then there's a whole new level of vulnerability when I had to let my kids all read the book before it went to print. At what was that right? experience like? Yeah. I think that's what was, I worry about the most. Yeah, because I never had access to my mom's interior no. world growing right. up. No, yeah, God, none no. of us did. Right? Like, <laughs> like, not that generation. Was, no way. Hundred percent not. No, and that generation had secrets. You know, yeah. <laughs> really did. And so, my older boys, I was okay with it. You know, my oldest son told me that he goes, "Mom, I've always felt close to you, but now I feel closer to you," which was sweet. And then my youngest son was who I was really worried about, you know? And because he was four and came back to me when he was five, so we were separated a year. And so when he was reading, he was a senior in high school. It was winter break last, you know, last year, a year ago, and I let him read it. And he, you know, he'd been asking for six months. I was like, okay, now you have to read it because if there's anything you want me to change or not, you know, want me to reveal in there, because I talked about a little bit of his anxiety later in life and things like that. So he's in his room reading, and I kept opening the door, like, "What part do you want?" And I know. then he locked me out. Of, he locked me out of his room, <laughs> oh, right? Because I was like, you know, it's now, just annoying. Now what do you think? Are you yeah, okay? No, what, what are you on now? Are you, you need okay? A glass of water? What's happening? Yeah. yeah. No. Wait, wait, uh, you want to take a break? You know. And yeah. he's not a big reader, but he read the thing straight through till midnight. You know, he was like, "Well, let's talk about it in the morning, mom." And I was like, "Okay," but I was not sleeping well. And he texted me at midnight and said, "There's a big problem at the end." And I was like, "What?" You know, because I wasn't sleeping. I text him back, what? You know, he's just down the hall. He goes, there's a typo. And I was like, oh, Oh. hasn't even gotten a copy of it. So he came in the next morning to my office. He's like, okay, I'm ready to talk about it. And he goes, I didn't know any of that. You know, like he didn't, like he knew the story, but he didn't know everything. And so, um, and then he's an 18-year-old boy. So he's like, yeah, the parts I wasn't in was boring. You know, like. (laughs) Sounds like, yeah, he's doing just fine. You know, yeah, he's fine. <laughs> Typical yeah, He's up in college. But, but it wasn't, again, it's never as bad as you imagine it's going to be. You know, it's funny, even just as Laura was telling this story, I could imagine the anxiety I would have just letting one of my kids have such a transparent window into something so vulnerable for me, especially if they were involved. How would they see me? Would they blame me for their trauma? I can feel that fear like in my body and the constant checking in, like, do you need a glass of water? What are you thinking? Are you done? I mean, that would be me 100%. And going back to what Laura said, it's just not ever as bad as you imagine it's going to be. And this was an important part of not imagining, but knowing how your kids are going to react. It took a risk. Laura had applied this courage and authenticity throughout her whole life moving forward. And this is what it looks like. And um, and I just don't pretend anymore. I show up as me and there's so much freedom and lightness in that. You know, there's moments, you know, it's not perfect. There's moments when you're like, oh, I want to look good on this recording, or I want to, right. you know, no, I know. I'm, or whatever I'm it is, you know. Yeah. And there's moments when I worry people are going to judge, you know, I've done a lot of work around that. I don't worry about it too much, but it, it's, you know, shame is sticky. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes it pops up a little bit. Yeah, pretending is, that is my kryptonite. If I'm doing that anywhere in my life, it is a huge warning siren. And not pretending is how I've stayed, you know, off of drugs for 15 years or so. Wow. You know, we're hardwired to to belong, to belong yeah. to a tribe, to have people, you know, not reject us. That's our survival, um, you know, ancient ways. But but it's still it's still now. Like, of course, we want people to like us and love us and accept us. And it's really terrifying to 
you know, risk being yourself and seeing is that love still there and what it is, it's very powerful. Yeah. When we started this episode, we talked about being perfect and the pretending that all of us do, whether it's a lot or just a little bit, the way whatever the idea of being a good person, a good mom, your best self, informs how you compare yourself to other people and what you hide. Laura had dismantled and rebuilt these definitions for herself in such a profound and healing way. I think my best self is my real self, and then that doesn't mean it's like my happy self, or my achieving self is just when, you know, some days I'm very happy and some days I have a hard time. And my best self, how it's evolved is I was having a hard time last week. I was having a work problem, a work issue, and it was like really triggered something deep in me, right? Like, I don't know what it was, but I was just like, oh, why can't I shake this? And 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 even now when I catch myself coping in a way that I never did growing up, mm-hmm. which is like, oh, I'm going to call some friends. You know, like yeah. a lot of people learn this in kindergarten. I just happen to be someone who didn't, right? Like, And I didn't learn it in my 20s and mm-hmm. I didn't learn it in, you know, in my 30s, you know. Yeah. So it is just like these sort of little magical moments where I still catch myself like, wow, look at, look at you getting through something hard. Yeah. Look at you um, saying what you think regardless of how it's going to land. Look at you saying no when you mean no instead of saying yes when you mean no, right? And like to me, the most radical thing in my life right now, my best self, is like this idea that I can actually say in the world what I need and want, right? Which is a weird, which is like its own new kind of starting over for me right now. Because it's like, especially when you're a mom or you're trying to prove yourself or you're just not showing up as you, you forget like, oh, this is what, what I want and need. And I... I worked with these Stanford professors who did a book, and in their book, they talk about this idea that you ask for 100% of what you want 100% of the time. Hmm. And I was like, wait, what? Wait, what? Like, <laughs> yeah. wait, you can do that? You know, it doesn't wow. mean you're going to get it. Yeah. And it doesn't mean in material things. It means in, like, the way you're living, the way you're working, the people you're working with, the conversations you're having, the people, you know. So I think my best self is now someone who's deeply connected, and I'm working on those deep connections more and more in my life and relationships and work that matters and, you know, helping other people share their stories who who have something that will resonate with the world, too. So, and I think my, you know, now it's just awareness. Like, I'll start worrying about tomorrow, today, but I catch myself now right? And present. I start, you know, trying to rewrite the past sometimes. I'm like, oh, if only I hadn't done that. Imagine if that didn't. And then I catch myself. So I think that's the only thing that's different is I'm just more aware of when I'm doing those things that are taking me out of today or right now or whatever it is, you know, just good old fashioned mindfulness stuff, which (laughs) Which is great. Laura has the most incredible story. And for all of the extremes that she went through and the work she did, I love that our conversation landed on, you know, just good old-fashioned mindfulness stuff. (laughs) It speaks to how much we have in common because that's good advice for anyone. In a life full of lots of new starts and overhauls and becoming something new, Laura's choice to change by being authentic and letting go of the pretending allowed her to really start over being present with herself and others, and finding real happiness. I love that Laura says that the most radical thing in her life right now, or her best self is, 
The idea that I can actually say in the world what I need and want. It keeps her present and authentic. It keeps her from slipping into bad habits or caring what others think. It keeps her moving forward, closer to her kids and friends, and to meaningful work that helps others to share their stories. From Laura, I have learned what effect being yourself has on the world. When we are scared to start over, because we can only see the discomfort and cost, we can consider the joy and deep connection waiting for us on the other side too. The only perfect life is the one you have, no pretending required. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Avery Shelmy and music and post-production by Kiplin Merrill. Laura Love Harden's book, The Many Lives of Mama Love, is the book you heard us talking about in the episode. It has her story and is available on Amazon. You can find the link in our episode description and on our website.